Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is another recording for Sex, Sex Work and Sexualities special series for the New Book Network podcast series. Um, I'm here today with Dr. Yvonne Wong, who's going who's come to, to discuss his work with us. Um, Yvonne, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of expertise and the title of the book, please? Sure. Um, so uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a, uh, I'm associate professor in the history department at the University of Toronto. Um, and I have been there since 2014. Before then I had uh, been at Stanford University um, studying Chinese history sort of throughout. I'm one of those <laughs> extreme nerds who just kind of went straight through school. And I was fortunate to be able to have a relatively, I think, smooth time. Um, I'm American living, living in Canada. Um, and uh, so this book is called um, Reinventing Licentiousness, Pornography and Modern China. It's just come out um, this spring with Cornell University Press in 2021. Uh, like so many, so many books, and I think so many first books, I've been sitting on this for a long time. It is based on my Stanford PhD dissertation. Um, yeah, let's see. Well, my interests have always been uh, strange, <laughs> I think. Um, in undergraduate, I went to an institution where all students had to do uh, multiple sort of independent research projects. So from that point, I was enabled by a series of excellent mentors, very generous people, to go off on strange tangents. And um, at Stanford, I came in knowing I wanted to work on, I had a deep interest in sexuality, history, um, gender, uh, the body, material, culture, print goods. And a lot of this does derive from my personal experiences. I mean, I think if people wanted to <laughs> catch up with me on the internet, I am placed enough in the millennial generation that you can find out a lot about me from the World Wide Web. Um, but I do think a lot of this was very personal too. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, linked to reading sort of sorted books as a, as a, as a, as a kid growing up and um, in two languages and sort of thinking about what that meant for me, but then also like immediately imagining, um, okay, we have some, uh, I apologize if you hear car alarms or whatever, <laughs> this suburban neighborhood is, is full of noise, um, but thinking like, okay, um, I wonder, you know, why we don't hear that much about what just ordinary people <laughs> would be consuming in terms of, um, print goods or, or just what their lives would be like. Um, uh, having also consumed quite a bit of like historical fiction, I, I always found the academic history approach a little, um, not quite satisfying sometimes in, in, in pushing the envelope on, okay, that's fine. But what are people mostly spending their time like fantasizing about? Like what's in their heads? We can't get there obviously, but can we try to probe that area a little more and think about how that was a force for historical transformation? So, and then the, 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 this book, um, <laughs> the, real, I, the real core of the idea comes from chatting with my PhD advisor, Matthew Summer, um, a Chinese historian of 
uh, has done a lot of work on sexuality, the law, um, rape, prostitution. Um, so we were chatting, uh, you know, beautiful Stanford outside one day, freaking everyone out with our conversation <laughs> about, he, you know, he's talking about wife selling and, uh, <laughs> and, and like trafficking and over here, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, what if I wrote a book about like, what about pornography? I don't feel like anyone's really done a book about the history of pornography in a, in a sort of social and cultural historical sense. Um, and less from a connoisseurial angle. And uh, he's like, oh, that's cool. Haven't you been doing some stuff in Beijing? Um, I happen to have been born in Beijing. I emigrated as a child. But, you know, I, I, Beijing has a pretty, pretty helpful and rich number of archives there that are relatively accessible. Um, and he's like, yeah, what if you just did something like Ying Beijing and Ying in, um, in Chinese and Mandarin, spoken Chinese, it means something like licentious or lewd. He's like, yeah, what if you did like this sort of <laughs> like gay New York, this very well-known um, uh, piece of uh, historical literature uh, by George Chauncey at Yale, um, you know, that's about sort of quote unquote fairies and um, homophiles and, and other such groups of folks um, in like the early 20th century. So like, what if you did licentious Beijing essentially? And I was like, huh, cool. I mean, you're my advisor, so I'm guessing that's going to be okay with you. And then I was able to actually find a bunch of um, a bunch of material um, attesting to the topography of of licentiousness. Um, and I tried as much as possible um, to not just foreground the, you know, highly literate, foreign educated, um, multilingual <laughs> sort of um, intellectual stratum. Uh, in this era and and to kind of yeah think about like if you're just pulling rickshaws on the, on the street if you're like working in a kitchen somewhere um and you felt sexy <laughs> what, what would you have gone to look for something stimulating what, what would you have um, how much would it have cost you roughly um what were some of your options and how did that kind of shift so that's kind of the part I, i'm proudest of in this book i guess would be the sort of on the ground um landscape of licentiousness um, obviously then I also felt compelled to talk about some of the intellectuals that so couldn't escape them. Um, but, uh, that's my, that's the biggest part that I'm happiest with, um, in, the, in this book, I would say. Yeah. I was really, I was really interested to read about the candy wrappers. Can you, can you explain <laughs> to the audience the candy wrappers? Because I was just amazed. That's just awesome. Like, when did that start? When did that stop? When can it come back again? <laughs> <laughs> right. For sure. Unfortunately, you know, that could probably be a whole, um, you know, museum catalog or something on its own if someone were to have the energy and, you know, funding to go do it. Um, so the candy wrappers that you mentioned um, are one of the coolest things I've, I've seen. And when I was sitting one summer in the Beijing archives, um, they had a bunch of documents that they had not yet digitized. This is also a few years ago. Now the arch archive access situation throughout the PRC as I'm sure you have some sense of, and many of our <laughs> listeners will know, is, is uh, not good. It's not getting better. Um, but this was you know, a little early in the 20-teens, and uh, they still have a bunch of paper archives. And I was mostly looking at you know, the municipal police, various iterations of this institution. And they were the ones, their, their patrol people would be the ones um, often encountering sort of ground level licentiousness in the streets, um, and confiscating it, finding people for it and whatnot. So I opened up this paper file from early 1930s. And um, so, the, so the work here does span into the 1930s um, and it goes pretty far back. I, I even touch on sort of 
you know, the 17th, the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries here. But the, the weight of the work is really between like about 1880 and 1930, roughly that half century period. Um, so anyway, early 1930s, and they had been getting reports of people selling like uh, candies with new pictures in them, basically, uh, with sexy ladies. And the greatest part of this was I opened this file and they actually had confiscated a bunch of these candies. So they stuck a couple of the original photos into the, into the file. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. It, was, it really made my afternoon. And um, it was a real pain in the neck to try to reproduce these because of course I ran off to get them like Xeroxed at, at, and scanned at the um, archive front desk. Uh, fortunately, I got this at that time. Who knows if I could even see this now. Um, the scans were of crappy quality, so they don't actually appear in the book. They're one of my favorite things. They are linked via uh, a perma permalink, um, thanks to the University of Toronto Libraries. But anyway, they're only about an inch tall. They're black and white prints, um, which really, to me, shows the degree to which just transformation technology does enable um, do enable sort of changes in what people could bring home, what people could have access to, how people could fantasize. Because if you're talking about one inch tall, tiny little photographs and in under a candy wrapper that you could buy for a really, truly trivial amount of money, um, sort of that was a radically different pornographic landscape than just a generation before where such technology would not have been very accessible. Um, photographs would have been at least clunkier in shape. Um, so, you know, daguerreotypes or mounted on glass or stereoscopes and, and you know, even picture postcards, just that much bigger, just that much more expensive. So what we see in this candy wrapper of pictures is, um, I would venture to guess that probably by the late 20s, you would have already been able to buy them. Um, but really into the 30s, 40s and, and beyond, you really have this incredibly profuse landscape of um, what the authorities thought of as perverse, um, as, as dangerously titillating. What's interesting here also is there um, is a strong sort of class um, and cultural political hierarchy because the actual content of the photos, because I was thrilled to see them, but not thrilled because they were especially sexy. They were just academically posed news. There's one um, fairly voluptuous woman um, and she appears to be sort of taking the stance on a chair, such as you might see in a life drawing, um, uh, live model session. And the other portrait was of a recumbent woman. Um, so both of their faces are kind of hard to make out. Um, one seems to be perhaps European, um, of European descent. One seems possibly East Asian, it's a little hard to tell, but these are really quite, <laughs> like I, I have people who have joked many times like, oh, so I should buy your book, it must be exciting. I'm like, well, <laughs> um, what we think of as pornographic and what the Beijing police patrol officers thought of as pornographic and got people in trouble for, not the same. And that's actually very important because those same pictures blown up and turned into an oil painting absolutely regarded as like creme de la creme modernist art, right? If you put them in a different situation by the hand of a different person. Yeah, there was controversy about that in metropolitan um, China and the Republic of China, just as there were in many other parts of the world over the female nude. But truthfully, you know, these, the actual content of these photos, not, um, not the problem, really kind of what made them pornographic was who was able to see them and like their size and shape and the fact that they were under these candy wrappers. And the candies are called modern beauty candies, right? To kind of give you a little bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, buy our candy. Get it, get a get a get a free uh, like tiny centerfold. 
Um, so yeah, so those are one of the coolest um, things I've found. And uh, unfortunately, ephemera is, well, as I got more into this project, um, I, I was like, okay, now I realize why maybe people haven't done that much work on titillating ephemera because it's ephemeral. <laughs> There's very little trace of, of a lot of this stuff. But, you know, um, my book cover is actually the cigarette box picture. Um, and so it would also have been very small, very cheap, cheaply printed. It's in color. It's from a little, a little bit of a, um, you know, a nice enough cigarette company to give you color pictures. But this is the kind of thing that's really hard to find like concrete specimens of. Um, and um, so, yeah, uh, this particular collector who very generously let me use um, some pieces from his collection. There's a illustration in the book also, um, that's a cigarette picture. It, it, it suggests this very large unexplored world. It's hard to explore, unexplored yeah. world of just random, um, <laughs> random- Everyday porn. Exactly, exactly, everyday porn, yeah. In your introduction, um, you describe how a century ago, China and other societies entered a new stage in the history of boundary around pornography. Mm. Can you unpack that for us, what you mean by that? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's the sort of $10,000 question. Um, so there are several elements that I, I try to lay out. And of course, the heuristic is always going to be cleaner than the messy reality. But what seems to transform, um, again, about 100 years ago, are several um, tangible and intangible dimensions. So tangibly speaking, we have, as I was just going on about these, these photographs, we have some um, new forms of sort of reproduction of material. So be that textual material or uh, visual material that transform how easily people can have access to whatever fantasies they can get from um, whether it's written or um, image. Uh, so these include like the photograph being the biggest one, the single biggest one, I would argue. And the photograph really, um, you have this immediate, and this is photographic theory that's definitely not by me, but you have this immediate capturing of a chunk of reality. Somebody at some point posed for that camera um, and the light hit them and the light bounced back into the optical apparatus, right? And cap it is captured. So you can sort of take possession of a chunk of that exciting reality for yourself. And that is a big tangible transformation. It also just was easy to print. You can print a gazillion little photographs um, and they could be really portable, really easy to keep from prying eyes, but also very easy to hand to other people for, you know, you can loan them out, you can circulate them quite easily. Um, so yeah, so I, I would say some some technological innovations. The lithograph is another one, right? You start being able to print off on letterpress whatever scandalous um, ditty or or novel you desired, and that was a sight easier than even woodblock printing, which still requires some kind of startup. But lithography presses popped up and were seemed to have been pretty unscrupulous about what they <laughs> wanted to print and make money from. Um, and then other tangible things are from a sort of broader sense, and they. You know, if I had been, I kind of wish I had tackled this a little more. I know other people in sort of the Chinese history field are actually working actively on this. But um, one thing that I think is really inseparable here is also the technologies of reproduction. So contraceptives becoming um, highly reliable, really not perfect, but much more reliable 
than ever before. And then also um, relatively accessible. So, you know, buying a rubber condom, um, much more within reach, maybe not the state of the art kind, but you got something, um, various other types of contraceptive apparatuses um, becoming known in the, and, and more available in the early 20th century, really, I think is, is a big deal. And it, um, and together with the photograph and with the contraceptives, we do have a shift that's more intangible in like the, the kinds of people who are who are uh, depicted by the press or who are actually probably in real life expressing their sexual needs, desires, fantasies, and urges, sort of becoming sexual agents, right? So the biggest group here would be women of all ages, of all social backgrounds, um, moving into the streets, consuming, possibly being exposed to and consuming the same stuff that men could be consuming. Um, other categories like youth, um, students, young people um, had for quite a number of years because of how long this history is in the Chinese speaking world have for many centuries really been thought of as particularly liable to being beguiled by licentiousness and particularly likely to consume licentiousness. So that's not entirely fresh and new, but now we have women students, right? We have young girls, we have young women also in the streets as well as their older, um, uh, older sisters, mothers, aunts, uh, sort of circulating in this in this way. So the photograph makes it interesting because the photograph also really um, uh, pushes forward this linking of pornography with the exposed body, um, which is not really the visual language of earlier forms of visual um, licentiousness in the Chinese speaking world. And in particular, um, the exposed female body, right? Um, so solo. That was not something that was particularly common as a trope in the so-called spring pictures earlier. So we have these sort of intermix or kind of um, symbiotic shifts that aren't really gonna be, you can't really break them all apart. They're all kind of happening around the same time. You have the technological dimension, the sort of mass media dimension, the replicability of the photograph. You have this global, this global transmission after all the photograph uh, as we know it, sort of comes from some French inventors and, and tinkers, um, and it quickly spreads from, from Paris outward. Um, we have sort of contraception and new visions of womanhood and, and of gender, sort of how do women relate as citizens, how do women relate to desire. Um, so it's kind of all happening at once, but what I thought was most important to emphasize for, for my end was just that we have put a lot of attention on, and people have obviously talked at length about like changes in the gender landscape between the late 19th and early 20th centuries. People have talked at length about like sexual science. So the contraceptives being the, the, the commodified aspect, but the ideas of sexual science being the, the, the less, um, uh, the more abstract component. That's all been quite discussed, but I felt that, you know, where is that all happening? Like, how is that even trickling down or trickling around the world? How is that spreading? Um, and really it's these sort of complex ex existing economies of desire, visions of licentiousness and markets for, as well as censorship of these things that kind of give them global wings. And wow. so um, I call the paradigm in which we currently live the global pornographic one, because I think these days we, reflexively think, okay, pornography, it must be, you know, film or photograph. It, it, it probably involves naked people <laughs> um, and naked female bodies probably play a, a prominent part in it. And that kind of is, that is, I think much of why um, 
points controversy comes down to this assumption that it is the sort of exposed female body um, being the centerpiece, right? And and that's a new thing. I don't think that's certainly in the Chinese speaking world. That is um, not that was not the default, and I think in many other parts of the world as well. Yeah, and I, I that's what I found really interesting about the discussion about boundaries. That there's a, this explosion of um, a sort of availability that needs to be sort of monitored. But I was also thinking about what you were saying about for the first time, the exposure of the female body. And and I was thinking about how pornography has has really mutated in the last sort of um, 20 odd years with with um, with the development of webcaming. Yeah, mm. so webca webcaming is really interesting because like the majority of webcam performers perform perform to what can often be quite a wide audience that's then street that can be streamed across the internet um but they perform to the screen they perform to themselves which changes that whole dynamic you know we really must get into a discussion about you know web coming in china but i just um i really want to sort of like lead on from this to to find to ask you um you mentioned in your introduction that you're interested in in the kinds of media that ordinary people regard as transgressive. Mm -hmm. So you use this as a framework of the book. And what did your research reveal about how, you know, what is transgressive, how people, uh, how people's conceptions of transgression have changed in the time that you're studying from say 1880 to 1930? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think one of my <laughs> dissertation committee members, um, a master of metaphor was like, Yvonne, you have written a wonderful salad. You have rated the salad buffet and there's just so much happening here. So, you know, initially this was in addition to thinking about what ordinary people were consuming, this was absolutely me trying to figure out where the lines had shifted. Again, as I already alluded to, and as I do talk about a bit in the early part of the book, there had been this, and in the book I call it sort of the early modern, um, licentiousness hierarchy, the sort of schema, both of the production of torrents of culturally influential um, pieces of licentiousness in fiction, in so-called spring pictures, in sort of artwork, um, even in sort of music and performance that then could also be transcribed. And, um, and I knew that that shifted at some point. And at the same time, I also knew that stuff did not completely go away at all. In a way that's actually, and I need to emphasize this for people who are not as familiar with the Chinese speaking world, um, that is very different from like the, say the French speaking uh, milieu, right? In Europe, the, the French have a long association with sort of pornographic representation, but I don't think that like in the 21st century, if you went in the streets and just asked people about like some of the things that are the most popular, um, can people recite the entire oeuvre of the Marquis de Sade? I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, would, would anyone even consider writing a management guidebook and publishing it on Amazon, like having it available on Amazon? That was like, you know, you can learn management from Justine. Um, like probably not, like, I, I don't think so. The cultural balance is really different, but parallels for that exact example I just gave um, with the Marquis de Sade's work does exist in the early modern to contemporary um, cultural space for sort of pornography in China. So. In the PRC, in the People's Republic of China, you know, um, some of these uh, sort of 16th, 17th century works of very, very explicit fiction are 
censored. You can't actually purchase them in a bookstore. You cannot purchase them on the internet. Um, you can go to Taiwan and buy them, but, but you can't buy them in the PRC. However, every Chinese adult, Chinese speaking adult really, knows about some of these pivotal works. They will know immediately what you're talking about, right? And they prove commodifiable. So like I give examples in the book of, um, of these, uh, you know, family style dinners for Lunar New Year that are themed after some of these books. It's the equivalent of saying, I'm going to a Christmas dinner that's like a hundred days of Sodom theme. It's like unbelievable, like no way, right? Um, I can't even see the French doing this really, but that was what, you know, one family chain restaurant was doing in Nanjing. This was a few years back. It may not happen now, but people were dressed up in costume. It was like the whole thing, even as the book is censored, which is the really crazy thing. So one really standout bit of this as I got into it was, wow, the continuity here is unique. Like I have always been hesitant you know, because of my personal background, in addition to what I study, to be like, well, you know, China, the exotic oriented is so different, nothing is commend. No, of course, there's a huge amount of commensurability, particularly because of the global circulation of things like, you know, naked lady photographs. But there was also something really weird about the durability of some of these early modern plot lines, characters, and forms, even, um, and how they've actually made a renaissance in the last um, you know, 50 years, say, or the last 40 years, as uh, the People's Republic has, like, you know, become more marketized, basically become, a, you know, a transnational capitalist uh, economy. These things have actually gained in cultural power. So on the ground level, on the level of the, like, sort of person who's not going to be writing dissertations about pornography, um, where folks are actually consuming what people know in their minds as cultural tropes, some of the stuff is actually from like the 17th century and it's alive. It's not, oh, that's just an antiquity. These are things that people still are trying to buy, right? And I find that kind of remarkable. Um, and that, that really sort of like, so sorry to interrupt, but I, like I was really struck by what you said about Foucault in the book and his understand and the way that he discusses modern sexuality and totally ignores China. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, could you, could you like talk about, you know, sort of like carry on with what you're saying, but talk, you know, include Foucault in this because I think this is such an important point. Yeah, and I, I don't want to claim it as my own. I think my intellectual history, a couple of the people who are also, um, were sort of co-evils in this field, um, but folks are more, uh, who have been analyzing sort of the intellectual trajectory of like the notion of sexuality in places that are not like English or French speaking, um, have, have made a point that, Foucault sort of excises a bunch of places in the world, which French people would have known had teeming sort of erotic cultures, um, particularly for elite men. Um, a lot of porn that was available to them, sex work, you know, whatever, a lot of rich erotic culture. He kind of excises them from his vision of sexual modernity or sort of a modern conception of scientific sexuality, of sex as nature, as human nature, but also sex as a question of norms and, 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 and the normal and the abnormal and the sort of pigeonholing process. So to, in his mind, sort of the um, Islamic Ummah, <laughs> the Far East, they don't kind of fit into this at all. Um, and he just kind of doesn't talk about them that much, right? When in fact, I would say, and my intellectual history friends have pointed out that, so directly speaking, he was going off of the work of European sinologists um, who are in turn cribbing off of, in some cases, these arch-conservative, hyper-nationalist, um, you know, intellectuals who are producing on the ground 
in the Chinese speaking world, um, their own visions of why Chinese nationhood was so paramount. Well, look, China had had these scientific sounding ideas about sex thousands of years ago. It's like the whole 5,000 years of unbroken history um, in the early 20th century. Then, you know, we have these intermediary sinologists who have great interest in all sorts of classical, you know, Sinitic culture, seeing this, being awestruck by this, writing about this. And then their work actually forms the basis for a lot of intellectual discussion about global sexuality studies and history. And of course, Foucault being one among many in that regard. So I don't completely blame Foucault for it, but it's an interesting sort of Ouroboros circulation of, uh, you might even call it self-orientalization for lack of a better word to say, okay, well, look, we had ideas about 69, <laughs> like you know, 2000 years ago, and this gets written down somewhere. A sinologist kind of sees this, translates it, writes about it, um, circulates it. And then the sort of intellectual classes in the European metropolis also take get one of this and then find this very interesting and exciting, but also outside of the purview of scientific sexuality. Indeed, I think there's an implication, at least in the first volume of history of sexuality, that um, these societies of, if you will, quote unquote, the Orient have like a better approach to sexuality because there's just more talk about it. There's more, um, there's a sort of rich, long culture about it. People aren't so skeeved out about it. But all of that is also, you know, to go back to my sort of native discomfort with um, either singling out the Chinese speaking world as sort of transcendental and unique, but also as drawing, like coloring over some of the distinctiveness, it's clear that um, there are many aspects in which this sort of hierarchical pigeonholing tendency in sexual science is not as recent as all of that. Right. So many, many people have revised Foucault's timelines. They're like, okay, well, <laughs> and I, I have a lot of respect for much of the work, of course, but it's like, you know, he, he's kind of offering large frameworks based on, uh, it's not so tightly empiricized, right? And when you get more empirical in most circumstances, you'll find, oh, it's, the timeline doesn't, it's not going to fit Foucault's timeline. You know, you, so you have, quote, mollies in like, you know, 18th century London, you have um, fairies, quote unquote, in like 1920s New York, you have the whole gamut and it's not according to this timeline, the 18th and 19th centuries. And ditto in the Chinese speaking world. I think it's pretty clear that there were pretty strong attempts to regulate sexuality on what we might call sort of scientific sounding rationalized lines long before the 19th century. Um, so ideas of like, you know, um, seminal conservation, all of this mostly from the masculine perspective, the patriarchal perspective, um, whose desires are kind of dubious and marginal. So young people, unmarried men, déclassé people, women, you know, um, foreigners, people who are regarded as culturally foreign in some way, all of them have dubious desires and there's, they're probably not very normal. They're probably pretty perverse. Um, so there's that language already in place. Um, yeah. It's not the same, but it, it's it kind of there. And that's partially why that plus the, the dirty novels that are still well known today, those two forces together, um, I see as having ex being able to explain why, um, at least in the Chinese speaking world, these sort of late 19th, early 20th century ideas, uh, Freud, for example, um, and other sexologists can, uh, you know, um, uh, can, can kind of really quickly take root and, and, and become so, uh, such an object of interest. And then in turn, generating 
hyper-nationalist self-orientalizing discourses that then go back and feed Foucault a few decades down the line. So it is all kind of connected. And that's part of the globality. That's part of why this is global pornography. And it's it's so funny because like when I read when I read what you were saying about Foucault, like literally I've I've discovered Shungar. Is that how is that the right <laughs> pronunciation? In the last two weeks, like I've literally just bought a, a print of like some some octopus porn. It is the, it is a thing. It is out there. And also like this this picture of a of, of a client sort of um lubricating a, a male sex worker. And I was like, and this is this dates from very like late 17th century, I think, you know. And it's like, yeah, we need to we need to be looking at sort of like the outside influences on yeah. modern perceptions of, of sexuality within the Northwest because it's almost like we invented it in the North global north right. it's abundantly not true so with that in mind would you give us an overview of of how your book discusses china's influence on western notions of sexuality and pornography sure i think for me um because my perspective is sort of a lot of the empirical evidence is coming from urban china in the early 20th century um, it's really kind of refractory to answer that question because it's more like, well, how are these influences that were perceived by people on the ground as being foreign and, and Western or European, how are they kind of being understood? But actually it is a, it is a dual exchange. So um, for example, so folks on the ground in the Chinese speaking world starting to try and kind of get these senses often via Japan, um, sort of double translation okay, now we're talking about sex as liberating. And it has to do also with feminist liberations, of feminist um, political empowerment, economic empowerment. Okay, so, um, and then, you know, the ending of arranged marriages. So these sort of institutional um, and, and gender dynamics um, that have to do with political economy too, filtering into the consciousness. And this idea that we have to talk about sex, this is a compulsion to discourse that of course Foucault describes. Um, that kind of comes on pretty quickly as like this rapid fire um, or storm of, of, of new uh, inclinations, of new vanguards to kind of follow. And if you wanted to get China, the nation of China, which is kind of coalescing into an idea in this era, if you wanted to get this new nation on board as, as quickly as possible, we definitely have to really contemplate sexual um, politics and sexual culture. Oh, wait, but we already have all the sexual culture. And so what my book kind of covers from the sort of more intelligentsia side of the, of the equation is um, a difficult dancing between, ah, we have all this existing sexual lore and sexual praxis and you know, discourse. And then how do we kind of wedge it into the cubbyhole of modern sexuality, which to many, many uh, who are trying to do this project was really dictated by like, you know, France, Great Britain and the United States. Um, and in some parts, you know, via Japan, which was also after its defeat of the Qing Empire was also seen as, oh, clearly have gained, having gained steam in the modern nation building project. So that cubbyhole didn't really fit a lot of the stuff very well. Um, in the process, as I said, you had some defenders of, you know, Sinitic tradition who then argue, but no, like these things that seem extraneous are actually the progenitors of this other stuff that we're seeing as modern now and that we value now. And then it's actually their, their ideas that, that kind of get um, people who are interested in the Orient, outside of the Orient, interested themselves. And so you have this kind of misrecognition to some extent on both sides of, 
and and the sort of cultural competition, right? So um, the people in the you know northwestern Europe in, in North America are like, ooh, the Orient actually has all these exotic um, erotic cultures, and we must kind of explore, study, celebrate to some extent this as part of our own sexual enlightenment, which guarantees our modernity. Meanwhile, people in quote unquote the Orient are seeing all this happening and thinking, okay, well, we must also talk about sexual culture, but only in certain ways. We can't decide how to talk about it. We will bicker about this and we will attack one another in the most hostile ways imaginable in the public sphere. So I guess also what I see is, I mean, this was obviously happening in Europe and, and North America as well. So it's like everybody kind of jumping into this really messy, um, still competitive and hierarchical um, sort of pool of mud and trying to sling, sort of sling mud at one another, trying to gain a leg up in cultural authority. What had once been in both Europe and I, I think certainly in like Imperial China, a more taken for granted incommensurability between the elite and the non-elite views of sexuality it was now getting kind of muddled. And um, the elite desperately, are, that's, that's why the book is called Reinventing Licentiousness. Um, they're desperately trying to kind of reinscribe some kind of um, containment or, or hierarchy, this, these rigid rules of licentiousness. So that, you know, if I, the highly educated um, patriarch, consume this, then it's basically inherently never going to be licentious. Whereas if you, the declasse, um, unmarried, you know, uh, border marginalized youth laborer on the side, basically whatever you consume is probably going to be licentious, right? That hierarchy had been really kind of scrambled, um, was becoming scrambled in this era. And so you see kind of thrashing <laughs> on all sides um, from the, on the parts of those who hold power, cultural power, economic power, political power, trying to kind of figure it out. And I think that is not necessarily something that um, directly is a sort of Chinese language, a Chinese culture impact on the West, but it's something that is happening kind of around the same time for, I would argue, roughly the same reasons. Um, so yes, I, I think there is a little bit of research um, and I haven't really touched on it here about how um, for say the homophile movement, the sort of elite movement to uh, say legalize same-sex relationships in Europe, right? Um, like Magnus Hirschfeld, some of his followers um, really saw a lot of promise and romantic and sexual promise personally too in the Far East because they knew at least for male-male sexual relationships and, and romantic relationships, there were these um, culturally kind of positive valences in um, Chinese-speaking places and Japanese-speaking places. So um, there is a sort of uh, trying to find a sort of more utopic space in, in places outside of Christian Europe um, yeah. for their needs too. But that's not quite as prominent here, although I wager that a lot of those exotic courtesan photos, um, new paintings of Asian bodies. I mean, these things no doubt had a teeming market um, in, in the West too. And so again, we get into this kind of complex Ouroboros circulation and that's that's the nature of global pornography that I think we continue to live in. Yeah, yeah. I was, and I was really struck when I sort of like, like, like I said, my latest discovery, Shenga, how explicit it was mm -hmm. in the time period that it was created. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you described your book as having two goals. Um, what are they? And can you explain how the book discusses them? Why are they important? Okay. <laughs> I'm surprised <laughs> I said I had two goals. Um, I think, I think uh, that that was part of the salad buffet problem. I was like, wow, I have so many goals. I wish to talk about way too many things. 
I guess, yeah, one of the, the prominent one um, is the sort of social history of modern sexuality. So why and how did, at least in this one case of like urban um, Chinese markets, did these apparently very new ideas about sexual nature, the sexual body and sexual agency, how they kind of become assimilated, how they become mainstreamed um, and dominant um, such that in many ways we're dealing, we're continuing to deal with them. These are, these are current, these are present um, and living, I think, uh, standards for, for sexuality. How they come to be um, so globally kind of um, taken for granted? And it had to be, I felt, more than just intellectuals convincing other intellectuals because they were so salient for nationalist projects or for certain economic projects. No, they, it had to be something else, but how was that actually operating? So one of the goals, um, I guess, would be to consider the workings of the more quotidian marketplace. Um, and in the Chinese case, that had existed for centuries um, for print goods, for media goods of all sorts. How did that kind of interact with new ideas? And what role did it have in generating um, what we can more observe today? Um, because I, to me, the paradigm, yes, new media, um, new forms of self-representation that's been made accessible since you know, the 1930s have, have continued to change the landscape. But I think some fundaments are in place and they do trace to this era and they do have roots in like everyday people, just barely literate people buying and selling like kind of crappy ephemeral porn. And then, you know, officers of the law trying to stop them and creating um, more demand, creating rarity, creating um, a, a sense of what was acceptable and not acceptable, and thus what was worth more and worth less. Um, so those sort of sort of fine-grained or grassroots level um, uh, exchanges, I, I thought, surely would have, we kind of had to also look to them to understand how some of these ideas took root, because this is a country, this is an area of the world in which the wealth gap was enormous and the literacy gap was enormous in this period. So you couldn't, you, people were not standing around expounding Magnus Hirschfeld to ordinary Beijing dwellers to get them to understand the new ideas of gender and sexuality. No, they was kind of coming in from somewhere else. And so um, that's kind of one, one leg of the project. And another one is to really just drill down and think, okay, what did change and what didn't change? It's a pretty boring and reductionist view of history in some ways, but it is kind of a central project of, okay, so we have the early modern legacy living on and thriving and still being really commodifiable and like really having that spark, that aura, if you will, um, yet a host of new technologies and new types of um, pornographic imaginations also uh, sprouting up and, and being sometimes used to express some of the express or depict some of the older um, characters, tropes, and um, sort of visions of, of sexual desire. So it is, it's both, um, what I'm trying to do is build on the already quite rich work that's existing um, and to kind of take it down <laughs> to the grassroots and then also um, just kind of bringing a bit of a microscope or a bit of a magnifying lens to sort of think, okay, what did actually change here? to empiricize um, a, a little more fully uh, what's happening. And so the, 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 the watershed of change, the moments of change, um, you know, the 1920s, for example, by the late 1920s, many things have started kind of 
clicking in a place or, or shifting. Um, discourse that had been viewed or new paintings that had been viewed with more opprobrium you know, by the 30s are much less problematic. It does have to do with larger political economy shifts. Um, this is a really politically chaotic time in uh, urban China. Um, but what did that feel like sort of on the, on the, on the lowest levels? These are people who were, you know, I have stories of people who like are saying, I came into Beijing to sell peanuts and then I don't really know how to read. And then my neighbor over there was selling these like little lady pictures and making a lot of money. So I also bought some lady pictures and started doing it. So, okay. That kind of person actually has a role in the in these mighty Foucauldian like machineries of change, I think. And I don't know that their role has been really explored, certainly in the Chinese speaking world, I think a little bit underexplored. So um, for good reason, they're hard to explore. Um, and so that's why I was um, so intrigued. The ordinary people also come to include just sort of a non historically anonymous people. They're not necessarily all the most marginalized. So. Yeah, students in that sort of book survey um, that uh, a leading sort of left-leaning or progressive uh, newsletter was newspaper was putting out, it purported to interview uh, or survey students around the uh, republic about their favorite books, and these were pretty historically anonymous people for the most part, um, responding to um, something that mass media made possible. But and so they were not the poorest of the poor, but they were not particularly necessarily influential personally. Um, so yeah, the sort of um, odd person out uh, literati, the, the sort of average student, um, the urban dweller who was not the one making policy, what is their experience? So I guess those are the two sort of impetuses I had um, in this book. I really liked how you explored as well. You kind of let, didn't really explore it, but you kind of hinted at it, but the policemen that are sort of like arresting people and sort of seizing their sort of contraband for whatever better word. And like making these kind of like, and how many of these have you got and where did you get them from? And at the same time, you're sort of like hinting at how low their wages are. And it's like, okay, so what we see here, another form of dissemination, it was like a really interesting kind of uh, sort of like take on the on the um, the archive stuff that you were finding that, that's not quantifiable, but you, you know, you can see a kind of a sort of hidden history there. So, yeah. I wanted, can you explain to us the the uh, the notion of yin ideology and ideology and how your book explores this? Yeah, uh, yin, Y-I-N, yin. Um, I translate that as licentiousness. And I think I mentioned the word already. Um, yeah. It can also be like lewd or, it's a really weird word, right? Um, it's an ancient word, an ancient character. And, um, you know, in some of the oldest uses, it's associated with, something natural, but in excess, and, and so much excess that it becomes dangerous or beyond the pale, like a flood caused by torrential rain. Um, it was applied in some cases to heterodox things. So um, in like late imperial, so Qing era, um, like you know, 18th or 19th century law, you would see in the criminal code, um, ying um, temples. It didn't necessarily mean sexy temples, it meant um, sort of temples that were not authorized by the state or they were seen as potentially heterodox. And so there was always, it's an, just like the word pornography, interesting, I think ying is not the same, but it has that inherent judgment. It's an inherently judgmental category. So the ying ideology um, I described has roots in some of the foundations of the Chinese imperium. So the Chinese speaking imperial bureaucratic sort of state setup and the political economy of that. 
um, where you have the son of heaven, you have um, his officers, whether recruited by blood or recruited by you know, ex eventually examinations, um, the so-called imperial bureaucracy. And that whole system, really the emperor is the only perfect subject. So everyone else is, um, is in theory kind of uh, a sort of a son and a uh, to this ultimate father, right? So the emperor's desire is the sort of fully legitimate desire. Of course, this is a theoretical construct and in reality, it's much messier than that. But the idea of the yin ideology is basically that the patriarch can do no wrong. So what's licentious for the guy on the street is never gonna be licentious for somebody with the sufficient position to kind of um, insulate him from these things. And it's almost always a hint, right? So I, I've been thinking more because I've been working on some other stuff since, and you know how it always goes. You like you write the thing and then you're like, oh, and it's finally out in print. And then you're like, oh, you know, I could have phrased this in a more comparative manner. And so I've worked on some more comparative stuff after um, working on the book. And I would venture that this yin ideology maps pretty closely to some other, I'm calling them like old world sexual hierarchies. So erotic hierarchies of who, whose consumption is the most legitimate consumption and unquestionable and kind of taken for granted and whose are not. That maps onto who's sort of, who's a political, economic and cultural subject and who is not, right? So really the, 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 the range of people, possible people um, you could be in a society and retain that sort of full uh, agency over your own desires and legitimacy. That was a very narrow band of people. Like basically you're property holding, you're male, you are you know, elite, you have, um, you have literacy, um, you probably have some role in the, in the state, um, in the hegemonic institutions that be. And so that's a yin ideology as I see it in the imperial um, Chinese setting. And it kind of has close parallels, I would say in other, in other settings as well. Sort of these old world empires um, such as, and, and here I'm almost kind of agreeing with Foucault. I'm like, well, the Arabo Muslim societies and the Oriental societies, but these are old world land-based agricultural empires with like very diverse populations. So I don't think it's that surprising that they evolved to kind of have um, some of these parallel ways of ordering desire such that oh. people at the top, you know, you could desire women, you can desire men, you could have concubines, you could um, paint your palaces with pornographic murals. I mean, that was um, maybe not always okay, but that was done. That was a thing that was done. You could collect um, titillating objects from far away and kind of use your cultural status and your um, tools at your disposal to kind of condition that as connoisseurial and curious and a mark of actually that further reinforces your elite stature rather than demolishing it, right? Rather than kind of laying that open to question. Whereas that same like fan or painting or novel in the wrong hands is automatically cause for concern um, in the eyes of the people up top. So it's an intensely, um, these are intensely hierarchical societies. So I don't think it's surprising that who gets to consume what kinds of sexual depictions is also intensely hierarchical. And all of this also, um, it's not always unchallenged, but it's kind of taken for granted that there's gonna be somebody who has more authority to, to say what's okay to look at and what's not okay to look at. And that some people's desires are basically are never okay, <laughs> are never sort of fully legitimate. 
And I, I would say that's in this yin ideology idea in the Chinese speaking world. And you know, I've, as I've been thinking about it more, um, I, I think that in some of these other land-based old world Eurasian empires, um, that was also the case. And even in the heartland of the West, the sort of colonial metropolises of the West, I think we do also see these assumptions dying pretty hard. You know, they, can, they kind of continue. Well, some people know what they're doing. Um, they also happen to the people, be the people running the state and uh, owning much of the property and uh, controlling the products of literacy. So these are the folks who, whose desires are sort of easy to justify if they, if they have to justify them at all. And then for um, the vast majority of the rest of the society, it's people still desire whatever they desire. People are still gonna find ways to actualize their fantasies or fantasize about their fantasies, but all that is gonna be much more likely to be regarded as not okay. And of course, from the historian's angle, to be meta about it, obviously it looks extra this way, extra bifurcated between the people who get to have their desires and to eat it too, and the people who don't, because we're working from sources that are generated by empowered institutions. So, you know, from the police angle, and I appreciate your bringing up the, the comparability between like a random patrol officer on the streets of Beijing and say like, 1919 and the person he was arresting because they were in background, not necessarily that different. Um, police officers often were just like one payday away from also selling pornography on the street. And, you know, I have, I, I, I have to think, I may have included this in a, in a footnote, I may have excised it, but I did find cases of, you know, police officers basically lamenting their poverty in very similar ways to the peddlers of porn also lamenting their poverty. They, they weren't that different in terms of People. And that's one of the tricky things about this global modern pornography is that the people are trying to uphold some vestige of this reinvented hierarchy of who gets to um, dictate what's normal sexuality, what's, what's healthy, what's good, and what's art, what's science, and what's porn. Um, some of the people upholding this are increasingly close to the people who are allegedly trafficking this illicitly. And um, things become very muddled, um, I think, in a way that they really hadn't been earlier. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's funny that you should say that because as, as you're talking about this, it's an idea that's coming to me. And in the, in the um, book, you, you, you mention a phrase, the commodifying of licentiousness mm -hmm. in a time of flux. Yeah. And, you know, based on the sort of previous comments that you've made, I've had this kind of like a realisation around the, the parallel that you could make with sort of like the Chinese pornography and and the, the aspect of it actually fulfilling um, a sort of monetary need for people, you know, the, the less well off, but also yeah. as well the debates around uh, and, and the actual sort of prostitution that occurred during the kind of um, the upheaval of the industrial revolution, you know, when sort of people, everyone's making their way into town but they haven't got jobs yet. So you've made, you've left this country, like these feudal villages, this kind of agricultural background that's been persistent for, for many hundreds of years. You've come to town and, and sex becomes an option, selling the sale of sex becomes an option. And it's quite funny because that's where that's that's the time frame that we get the word pornography from in this yeah. in in the global northwest. It's like the 1850s, and it literally means the writing of prostitutes. And I was thinking about the the phrase commodifying licentiousness at a time of flux. How when the flux settles, the licentiousness gets addressed. Like it's okay, poor people, you can do this for a while to cover yourself. Now it's all settled. Not going on anymore. We're taking it back. 
Yeah, and I was I was thinking about that again, like you know, I, I so wish I'd met you before I wrote my PhD because I was definitely <laughs> included this because because in my in my work like with webcoming like so webcoming entirely unlegislated yeah across the globe even in the US where they're nuts about any type of sex work mm -hmm. and who's who's doing the webcoming my research was that I interviewed with I interviewed thirty five webcam performers fifty percent mm -hmm. of them were educated to degree level and like you know. 15% above degree level and they couldn't get jobs yeah, yeah or they couldn't get jobs that were paying them enough so they 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 were they were coming and you know so nothing happens about those types of sex work yeah that are shoring up the economic um uh, sort of framework you know yeah. it's it's quite interesting because I'm really like I keep going back to the policeman and the policeman asking about how many of these have you got? Where'd you get them from? I mean, I wonder how many of those cigarette cards that you were talking about actually disappeared like <laughs> out of the evidence box. Yeah, well, so actually someone else, I was talking to um, an undergrad class about this. Um, a friend of mine teaches uh, in Texas and I was talking to her class and a very perspicacious undergrad was like, so like the police people just like take them and resell them? Like, what do they do with them? Oh. I have no idea. I mean, in some cases they clearly kept the evidence like with the modern beauty candies, actually just like stuck them in the, um, in the files. I know from police who went to observe performances. So there, there were lots of theaters. Um, picking operas regarded as kind of high class today, but like so many things we regard as high class culturally, like opera itself, it was tawdry and kind of, body and seen as kind of tawdry body, not necessarily very um, elegant in its own day. And it certainly had um, performances that would have been titillating, sexually titillating, right? So there were actually police officers that the Beijing police would post in theaters. Very nice job because you get to watch the whole thing and um, you get to make trouble with the theater owners who, I would see records of like the same guy, the same theater manager being brought in like every two weeks and fine, <laughs> basically as a, as a surcharge, as a tax, um, after the police had decided that one of the actors had done like an obscene gesture on stage or said something dirty, like ad-libbed something that was profane. So um, it's not necessarily surviving, but I have a sense that, yeah, again, the, 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 the line separating the low level patrol officer from the people he was finding, arresting or detaining for a few days in the detention quarters at the headquarters, very, very similar. And one thing that I, I do spend some time talking about, and I, again, in my onward research after the book, I was like, oh, other people have discussed this in slightly different contexts, in different geographic and historical contexts, but this idea of you kind of creating the thing that you're looking for, but then also maintaining it as a convenient legal fiction. So in this case, it's this idea that all people trafficking licentious print media, licentious media goods are ignorant hooligans out for profit. The profit motive was kind of morally suspicious, right? And it's people like to say that it's because Confucianism is very suspicious, uh, very suspicious of profit. But really, I think like Protestantism is also <laughs> other religious and and spiritual traditions also have some suspicion toward just mere profit. So, and they're ignorant and they're hooligans, right? And a lot of times these sellers come before the police interrogation. They're like, "Yeah, that's exactly what I am. I don't even know what I'm selling." I just wanted to make a buck, which doesn't even make any sense because if you don't know what you're selling, why the heck would you be selling this and not something else, mm. right? You have people on the street selling literally everything in Beijing, right? It's an infamous secondhand economy. It's a recycling economy. You have, you know, rags, everything from rags to peanuts to toys to anything you could think of um, was being sold. So, and some of these people had done other professions. Others were ground level professions. 
and they decided to turn to this. So clearly they were not ignorant. They were out for profit, but they were not ignorant. And yet it was just convenient to kind of say, okay, yeah, basically I will tax you by finding you, confiscating your goods. I'm not sure what happened to those goods. In the People's Republic era in the 50s, I wrote a paper about sort of the so-called dirty books in the 50s and what happens there. We know that they destroyed a lot of them, or at least the instructions were to destroy a lot of the stuff that was being confiscated, but then to also always keep a backup, at least one backup copy. So I have a sense that it's entirely possible that the police just went right back and fenced it somewhere else. Um, totally possible. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't have concrete evidence of this, but it's totally plausible. I think it's totally plausible. Yeah. It's really and interesting. It's, yeah, really, just, it's really interesting. It's really interesting what you see in the data sometimes that isn't quantifiable, but you yeah. can see it. Yeah. You know, so in your conclusion, um, you, uh, which is, your conclusion is titled From Yin to Yellow. Um, can you tell us what you mean by that, from yin to yellow? Sure. Yeah. From So ying is this quite old word in, in Chinese and goes back you know, centuries. And as I said, it, it has meanings that are a little bit outside sex too. But I would argue that by the turn of the 20th century, it, when you say ying, and certainly today, if you say this word, it does pretty closely map onto like pornographic licentious lewd. It has kind of narrowed its meaning to, to be more about sex. Yellow is the current legal parlance in the People's Republic um, and for all things sexually excess. So the, the conclusion is kind of pushing um, the time frame forward a bit to uh, the, the Second World War and then the, the post-war um, victory of the Chinese Communist Party. And so what happens to the licentious stuff, the centuries worth of erotic culture and its production, as well as the sort of constant back and forth between the law and law enforcement and, and people trafficking, consuming this stuff after um, the late 1940s. And, you know, um, so the, peer, the People's Republic is often viewed as a big cultural break because um, unlike the preceding regimes of the Republic of China, the new um, authorities really crack down on cultural output. And they really try to do this systematically and um, across the, their new nation, <laughs> very, very uh, uh, in a coordinated and centralized manner. And to some extent, this is true. And not all of this is in the conclusion. As I said, I also kind of wrote a um, spinoff paper kind of about this. But at the same time, you know, Mao Zedong himself is referring to of a particular scandal, quote unquote scandal around new painting. He's referring to that 17th century infamous novel, Plum in the Golden Vase, which um, I described earlier as having had this like themed dinner, having been, some of the characters have been um, used in like management handbooks and stuff. So this very popular and very pornographic cultural referent. Um, and a lot of this work has to be very much piecemeal because the evidence is even thinner, but, you know, um, it seems pretty clear that the reinventing of licentious hierarchy, of this yin hierarchy, of this sort of, some people's desires are just taken for granted, occurs big time <laughs> in the post uh, PRC era, right? So um, that's such that, you know, literally this particular novel, the 17th century novel um, was not accessible to the vast majority of the population, but Mao seemed to have approved people of a certain bureaucratic rank and above to read it. So you could go pick up a copy 
And I had some like, you know, mem memoir and sort of oral history accounts of people saying, yeah, like, you know, it'd be under guard, you like go and they would deliver it to you with people like a little uh, tricycle or something. And they, 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 there'd be extra, extra deputies going along with them to make sure no one stole the books, things like this. So um, it, it is pretty accepted, I think, that the official order, at least in like the 50s, was if you were of a pretty high bureaucratic position, like the head of a province or something, um, you, you could have access to this novel if you so desired, but not otherwise, which I don't know how much more transparent you could be about really forcibly reinscribing that default assumption about some people's tastes and some people's desires just always being more legitimate than other people's, right? I've been asked also in the course of sharing about this book in its earlier phases too, what's your take on porn? Like, are you pro-porn or are you anti-porn? I'm like, well, I think it's pretty obvious that I'm not anti-porn um, I'm talking about. I, I don't, I'm not proceeding from the position that it's inherently corrupting, bad, evil, or even fully avoidable. <laughs> like it's, it's not necessarily something that I think is um, uh, purgeable. What I do think is worth noting is how again and again, the hierarchies and presumptions of whose desires are basically more okay than other people's desires. And then as you were saying about camming, how those assumptions undergird massive systemic um, hierarchies, bigger ones of political economy, how that is not usually, that's not necessarily thought of very clearly. So um, what we see in pornography and what we judge be pornography is just one facet of these larger judgments and um, taken for granted uh, dichotomies or hierarchies between who, whose desires are okay and they count as art, as science, and as medicine, as curiosity, as connoisseurship, and whose are dirty, um, corrupting, perverted, you know, and so forth. And of course, queer theorists have had a lot to say about the drawing of these boundaries, but I thought it was really important to kind of bring that together a little yeah. bit in the social history. Yeah. And that was kind of why I asked you along, because like the, the whole point of this space is that, you know, let's just get over it. Sex work is here, whether you like it or not, it's here, it's been here a long, long time. Let's just let's just study it as a as a cultural as an anthropo anthropology as a as an art as whatever but let's study it and let's start having this like sort of you know diet binary debate about whether it's good or bad let's stop this let's 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 stop all that mileage that we give into the feminist who otherwise wouldn't have a political voice yeah get yeah. off that it's like time for them to like get off the hobby horse and move it along which is entirely why we're doing this so um what do you hope to achieve with this book? And who did you write it for? Um, <laughs> on some level, when I'm advising students these days, I'm very transparent. Like academia, lots of pitfalls, you know, many times think of these things as like fiery hoops. You just kind of jump through to get things done. Who did I write this for? I mean, on some level, it's a self-expression too. I feel like we don't talk about that very much. And for something that's so touchy a topic as pornography, um, I think, I wonder how many people hear me talk about this topic and are like in the back of their minds like oh so this person must like porn it's like so what <laughs> i mean Love sure <laughs> yes i mean it's a probably please i've never given much credence to people who claim they've never looked at anything pornographic if only because like the that intrusion of nude exposed but often feminized bodies into advertising into like the very fabric of our transnational capitalist life and consumerist lives is so taken for granted now. What would have been seen as definitely ribald, like those candy wrapper pictures that were confiscated, are to are these days used commonly as advertising and as, as, as right. And so, 
I just really very much look askance at this. And so, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, this is a huge part of life. Where does it come from? Where are our assumptions about it come from? Um, as a trans and queer person, I think to some extent, it can be a liberating force. It can be some force for thinking about what is not immediately obvious as possible too in, in one's own life. And of course, it's not solely that. It can absolutely be a force of exploitation, just like we, we humans love to do this. Just like um, gardening. <laughs> just like so many else. Um, yeah. But yeah, but that was, my, that was my motivation. And because I had seen a few cases and these police cases, I want to say, not perfect distillations of anyone's real voice, but often you get these really poignant, almost charming, kind of heart moving kind of um, stories out of them. You can get the sense of like, you know, in 1917, these like teenagers running around in the streets, like running amok and, and what are they doing? What are these young people who are very much people thinking about? Like how was their mental universe being reshaped by these things? Um, so just as my own mental universe, I grew up in a pretty conservative part of the United States um, where there were lots of sort of simple binaries about how people should behave and kind of who gets to say what about whom. Um, so I think it was very personal in a way too. And I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of this. Um, I also have always been like many, I think many colleagues who work on gender or sexuality studies, like, why would you want to work on anything else? I'm like, this is, this is it. This is the, this is the essence here. Um, this motivates a lot of people and we don't want to, or like to address the fact that it does. Right. Yeah. So yeah, to me, it was like very obvious. It was like, once I hit upon the topic and I knew that there were some sources to go on and that people hadn't really tackled it this way. I was like, okay, that's it. We're gonna, we're gonna do this. Um, and, you know, I also constantly feel inadequate about it. Like, well, I could have written easily like 250 more pages. Um, the dissertation was longer. I mean, there's so much more to talk about. Like the whole idea of contraception pornography being kind of intimately related in this radical new possibility for human sexuality and sexual expression. Um, I teach about it now, but I, I didn't really put that into the book and probably I should have. Um, there's just so much else, Di diasporic interpretations of sexuality, what that, yeah. how that influences all of this. Um, many people have asked me, and I felt like a bad feminist often for maybe not being even more, like putting more prominently um, the new position of women, women consumers, and of like visions of female bodies and sexualities in some of this material. It's obviously there, um, and I think it's advice of many, I kind of try to bring it more forward, but the fact was that the police were all male, and I think there were strong presumptions about who would even be interested in this material. Yeah. And, and I think that continues today, right? So. Um, I mean, I've just been reading Beloso recently, I think her name's Brooke Beloso, and she says that, that we have to be careful when we're, we're studying things like sex work to step away from the gender sexualities sort of lens because by doing that sometimes we miss the larger picture and there's there's a much larger picture here about transformation of society you know sort of boundaries um you know sort of a repossession of of imagery by elites because all the time that you've been talking you've touched on it yourself i've been thinking that this is almost like an invert, inverted um opera isn't it Whereas the, the upper classes stole opera from, from the lower classes, like the lower classes have repossessed, you know, mm. this type of pornography mm. in, a, in a bid to survive. You know, mm. at the end of the day, this is a, this is a financial 
this is a sort of like an economic generating sort of um, activity that we yeah. can we can forget that if we concentrate on the sort of gender sexuality aspect. And sometimes we have to remember that as academics, mm. we have a certain entitlement that allows us to consider things through these these lenses. Mm -hmm. that, that you know we can sidestep the the economic issue you know but maybe we need to step back into the economic issue and see what's actually going on here and and it was this 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 it was just this beautiful historical view from outside the global northwest in a way that we do not get to see very often which is why i invited you along to discuss your awesome book so as a shameless plug for you why don't we say who you are the name of your book and who's published it and when it's available. Okay. Um, so again, I'm Yvonne Wong. Um, I am uh, in the history department at the University of Toronto. My book is called Reinventing Licentiousness, Pornography, and Modern China. And uh, it's come out in uh, March 2021 with uh, Cornell University Press. And um, yes, what was, what was there something else? <laughs> I, missed. I think you got that covered. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time.